Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, I look at first pages from listeners. I sometimes uh, chat randomly about stuff that I'm thinking about and occasionally, more than occasionally, often I uh, get guests on and I chat to them about writing. Sometimes they're authors. I've had a few psychologists and neuroscientists on the show. I've had some people from the world of publishing. And today's guest is Chris Gribble from the National Centre for Writing in Norwich. Um, it's the National Centre for Writing, comma, and it's in Norwich. Um, and we talk about what he's been doing there. We talk about the new prize that they've been uh, they've sort of taken the helm of. Um, we talk about books in general and reading. It is a really good talk. Obviously, I'm not going to start this introduction by saying nah, not not a vintage talk, to be honest. A little bit, um, you know, a little bit weak, but um, I did record it, so I'm going to have to put it out. I, I suppose, you know, I, I was I went and did. You may have heard the live episode I did at the uh, centre. I was going to Chris to talk about the work he does there and what they've been doing um, in terms of helping writers. And I thought that'd be really interesting, but it, I suppose it would have been a different interview than when I'm talking to an author. It's a little bit, slightly different modality. Um, and so I didn't know quite what we were, you know, what to expect, what we might talk about. And um, I actually, <laughs> you know, I've only devoted my entire life to writing and reading and books and literature and, and I still managed to learn new things which is just it was just wonderfully shocking to me that Chris made me see some elements of books and reading in new ways which was just you know I, it's not nothing to do with him I just you know I I kind of thought I was a bit getting a bit long in the tooth now to have revelations and cheeky epiphs but a really, really fun chat. Really interesting if you're at the beginning of your writing journey, uh, however long that journey <laughs> is predicted to be. Or, you know, if you are getting to the stage where you want to work on a first novel or you're thinking about what it's like to be kind of like an emerging writer, to kind of like launch yourself into the world um, at the National Centre for Writing. That's kind of one of the areas they kind of specialise in as well as finding and supporting writers from, I guess, what is termed non-traditional backgrounds, which is a sort of nice way of saying not white, middle-class, straight males who've been to university, right? And um, it's it's just really, really cool, the stuff that they do. And I should say not that that category of people is um, uh, bad <laughs> in any way. They get help too, but they're particularly um, interested in helping us have a uh, slightly less shallow literary gene pool and um, and supporting new writers and just getting, you know, just raising the kind of quality of stuff that's out there and helping people tell their stories. And I, and I you know, I don't know. I don't want to don't want to gild the lily too much by saying, and I think that's really cool. Well, that's a very controversial t opinion to take, Tim. Well, you're saying 
you think that helping writers is great. Yeah, I do. Wow, I know. It's a tough sell with this audience, right? Um, but it's easy to take a lot of the stuff that organisations like the National Centre for Writing, there isn't, there aren't really any organisations quite like the National Centre for Writing, as you'll hear, but um, we take organisations that kind of support the arts for granted a lot of the time when they're doing stuff well they're often their work is often invisible to the public at large you know it maybe appears in the acknowledgements at the end of a book and um i think that they've helped me a lot in my career and i'm not doing this episode as a kind of quid pro quo but i'm just saying from experience the support they gave me at the beginning of my career was um invaluable may well have been essential i suppose i might have sort of stumbled towards some kind of grab bag dog's dinner of a career without them but it would have been a much poorer rougher altogether more tawdry affair without their support so you know i hope that you enjoy listening to this episode i hope you enjoy my chat with chris because he's just just will make you feel very enthusiastic about literature if you're in a sort of in the doldrums at the moment you'll go oh yes that's why it's awesome and um if you if you enjoy this episode you can pop onto their website um i'll put a link in the show notes and um check out the stuff they do particularly pertinent for you if you are based in the uk although as you'll hear, they do some really fantastic work with translators from um, and um, authors writing in different languages from all over the world, and they've got a they've got accommodation on site to get people over from other countries to collaborate and to share their work. So it really is that does have an international scope. But I hope you enjoy this episode and um, you can also buy my books still. The Honours Sequence, which at the moment is comprised of The Honours and The Ice House, they're available, links in the show notes. And if you want to drop me a few uh, beans to uh, help keep the lights on in Claire Towers, then there's a link to my uh, coffee page as well. That's all for today. I hope you enjoy my chat with Chris Gribble from the National Centre for Writing. I think somewhere that I would like to start actually is how you, how you have found yourself here, because people are listening. You know, not that, you know, not that your name isn't, you know, one of great renown, Chris. But like, um, <laughs> you, but you, because you're just sort of very modest and hide your light behind a bush or never wants to. You're kind of like you're kind of like a kind of uh, Santa Claus like figure that like leaves these various gifts in the uh, in the culture, but but um often evidence of your being there is not uh, apparent. Um, I just was wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about how you have found yourself uh, here um, doing stuff. Because I, like, for me, I'm like an enthusiastic end user of what Writers' Centre does and what the sort of, like, arts world uh, does, but not... Um, uh, but there's a whole kind of, like, production and... Uh, 
about. So what do I mean? What what's your what, what's your what is what is your job title, Chris? I really I don't know. Uh, my job title is I'm chief exec of National Centre for Writing and the uh, Norwich and Yesco City of Literature. What does that what does so what does that involve? Basically, I, ru- I run the organisation that is the National Centre for Writing. We were uh, Writer Centre Norwich until last year, and uh, we've kind of grown and expanded and acquired and built a building and built a, an extension onto a very old building to create the actual physical Writer Centre, but we've got an online life as well. We're an organisation that kind of explores the artistic and social power of creative writing, literary translation and reading, and we kind of track those art forms, where they go, explore what they can do, support the people who both produce and consume the art forms and champion them to try and grow the amount of funding and support for writers and readers and literary translators because it's such a hugely important part of our culture. So one so actually I want to I'll tell you what I would I'm really interested in is like I I think I know some answer to this but I'd really like your taste take why do you think it's important? I think um, as a as an art form it's First of all, it's absolutely central to our national identity and literature as an art form is central to the travelling and the changing of national identities and communications between cultures, full stop. It's stories. Stories are machines for change and literature is one of the, is the art form for storytelling. Obviously, all art forms tell stories, but literature is peculiarly adapted to it because of its linguistic nature. And stories are how we make sense of the world how we make sense of each other. The stories we tell each other in order to lead us to fight and kill each other are the same shape as the stories that lead us to tell us to be nice to each other. So stories are these incredible machines for social change, personal change, psychological change. And it's what the art form does for us is so vital to this sense of cultural identity that it's always intrigued me. And books, the art form, books, literature, stories, changed my life and that's uh, and that's how I got on the track with it how can you talk a little bit about that some kind of like a, a couple of stories maybe that somehow changed changed your life or you know one question I often start with when I'm talking to authors is um what's the first story you can remember telling um <laughs> but like can you remember like a, a story that sort of hit you or like had a moment of was like this aha moment or you kind of came look up from the book going oh, holy crap like what what was that there are there are two things that i've talked about before um but really are very important to me i um kind of nicked my sister's copy of Germaine greer's the female eunuch when i was about 14 i think um and it's quite a late sort of event and i read the female eunuch and thought oh my God, nobody told me you could do this sort of thing with thinking and books and words. This is amazing. Someone's job is to go away and read books and think and write amazing things like this, which have just changed how I view the entire universe. And and I sat there kind of in a small bedroom in a small house on the edge of an ex-mining village in Newcastle in the mid-80s going, oh my God, that world somehow connects to mine and I can get there. Holy crap. So it's like... A lot of authors, um, a lot of people I talk to actually, like they have like a book that feels like it either has a kind of, it's like a permission book is the word Mm. I want to say. It like goes, you are allowed to do this. And they go, oh, I didn't know. And sometimes that is like, sometimes that is like a a pulpy detective romp. And they go, I didn't know you were allowed to have fun. And sometimes it's like a profoundly like literary thing. And they're like, oh, I didn't know stories were allowed to be about something. Um, And sometimes they're stories that, 
connect, like you're saying, to some part of your life, and you go, oh, I didn't know there were we were allowed to write stories about this, what I see around me. Oh gosh! And so for you, like you felt like it changed your sense of, if I'm not misunderstanding this, it changed your sense of what you stories were allowed to be about. Yeah, uh, kind of looking back at it with kind of the knowledge I have now, it was about how someone had rewritten a narrative that I thought I understood in such a way that it, it basically, it's like turning on four new lights in the dark room that you're in. And, you, and I went, Jesus, that's incredible. Uh, and kind of, you know, you, you go on, you develop, you read more, you think actually there are some bits of it which are a bit mad or a bit questionable, but the power of it was just amazing yeah amazing. yeah there's definitely some stuff that like later in your life it doesn't have this yeah anything like that there's always that moment where you kind of like look back and you worry am I going to go back to this and not relate to it in the same way but then it kind of like is a sometimes a raft that gets you to where you need to go yeah. and you might not want to carry it with you for the rest of your life but it I think there's so many moments especially when you're a teenager right like that it, it is it just sometimes at the right time, it's almost like it stages an intervention and goes, totally. come here, kid, I've got something to tell you that no one else is going to talk to you about. Absolutely. And if it's good, you know, later in life, you go back and you think, oh, now I see where it came from and what it was part of, which you just, I just thought it was a bolt out of the blue at the time. I thought no one had ever done anything like that before. And this was a brand new thing that you could do. Obviously, it, there's a history to it, but I didn't know that at the time. Now I do. It just makes it deeper. It, it, you know, it makes it different, but it's still there. And it's directly, and I'm not a writer. And, you know, I am, you know, what you're saying at the start, I am basically a bureaucrat in the arts. And I'm happy I didn't, that. I didn't, <laughs> no. I, didn't, I didn't use the word bureaucrat. No, you don't, you don't. I'm happy to use it in the sense that, you know, I really love making things happen, connecting people, doing stuff. And I don't need, I'm not the creative person in terms of the art form. That's fine. That's not what I do. But I am a reader an absolutely committed reader at heart and and the, the kind of the second story that sort of shifted my axis was uh, a boy's own story which by Edmund White which helpfully has story in the title and I remember being terrified to buy that from the bookshop uh, from WH Smith in Eldon Square in Newcastle in about 1983 and uh, taking me about two weeks to pull up the courage to buy it because I thought everybody would know what it was about. Nobody in WH Smith in Newcastle knew it was a seminal story of coming out in 70s America. I assumed that they did and we're all pointing at it. <laughs> Look at the gay kid from Throckley buying that book. But no, they were they, they, they had like attached like a red thread Completely. to the book that, that sounded Massive an alarm when someone took it. The big gay fans would go and I'd be blown into the centre of the shop. And I, and I missed my bus stop for, you know, three stops. And I didn't live in a very big village. So missing a bus stop meant a mile and a half walk back in the driving rain. And I just sat on the bus reading that thinking, I'm not actually alone in the world. And that um, was massive. Absolutely massive. Because I thought I was. I thought I was alone like books what do you think so have you if that is i'm just thinking now we live like so somebody listening might think if i'm gonna be cynical like but we live in the age of the internet now where everyone can reach out to everyone else we have all these ways of people being connected and i am asking asking this from a naive point of view as someone who writes books but why do we need still need literature and books when we have Twitter, Chris? Is this, is this a question that I'm asking? 
I, it's, I don't know, why do we have cake when we have kind of Irish stew as well? <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 books do something different to you. And the nature of the communication, the extended nature, the depth of the identification, the elaborate nature of the imagined world in the books, the direct address, the literally the... the and I'm not a religious person, but it's about as near as I get to kind of a conception of communion. Um, it's about as near as I get to being a kind of materialist dullard that I am. It's about as near as I get to actual magic being enacted through the, the, the book, through the physical aspect of the book of you and it being together alone one time only ever in that moment. And that's quite incredible i never really thought about that actually it, now you're saying it that's really oh my gosh i don't believe i've been reading this long and i'm just chris what are you what are you doing to me but like because i always thought you know as a performer right that that when i do stuff on stage that is the ephemeral art form you know you go up and you do a performance you do a show it happens that one time for that audience and then it goes away but then actually from what you're saying and from what you've just made me realize is my experience you can only step in that you can't step in the same river twice, right? You approach a book, you read it. If you come to it again, it's a different time in your life. You already know the story. So actually each time you have that engagement with a book, it's it's a one-off performance. <laughs> and it's, no. it's, it's funny because the philosopher's joke is you can't step in the same river twice. The linguist's joke, of course, is you can't step in the same river once because <laughs> it's not the same river at that point. It's just the river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, how then, if you, because it also seems like these, like, moments for you are, like, really, they're just these amazing sort of uh, engagements with a piece of art. From, like, a writer's point of view, it's like, it's like the dream for someone to have that engagement with your work, right? That you, that you reach out and you give something to somebody in a different place and time and they make their own, you know, they, they have this kind of point of connection, of profound connection with your work. How then, you're going into the world of arts bureaucracy, um, what kind of things can you do as uh, someone in this kind of like mediating role to make those kind of experiences more likely? Because they seem sort of like, they seem like kind of serendipitous, right? In a way that you'd go, well, how, you know, how can you make luck and good fortune happen so mm. what, 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 what do you then have to do? I think it, it's kind of um, it's always salutary to remember that you can't guarantee that it ever happens but you can it's a bit like having a good time you can never guarantee it and the more you plan it the less likely it is sometimes <laughs> to happen but you can create the conditions for it so it, it's about thinking about the the really dull side it's not really dull but thinking about the more mechanistic side of the production the transmission and the consumption of the art form you can support people who are brilliant at making it you can support the ways of getting it from the makers to the consumers whether that's readers listeners audiences or whatever and then you can support those people who read listen or uh, kind of are at, at present at events to um, experience more to experiment more to take risks and what they do to do it more often and to grow the number of people and to lower the barriers the many barriers that there are to people joining that group of being an audience or a reader or a participant so that's what we can do effectively what do you here's a here's a big question you can take any way you want what do you think of this what do you think of the state of uh, literature in the UK at the moment um, I think it's it's kind of um it's an it's a sort of an 
literature for me is a gloss for a whole set of connected overlapping worlds even so literature part of literature is bookshops and there's great things happening in bookshop world bad things happening in bookshop world literature is publishing there's great things happening in publishing and bad things happening in publishing there's uh, reading groups and libraries there's great things happening in libraries there's terrible traumas that are happening to libraries as well so it's an incredibly mixed picture overall i think ultimately in terms of the quality of um literary products hitting the marketplace the the diversity is getting a lot better the platforms are proliferating the world of podcasts has changed that as well as kind of ebooks and literary festivals you know I, I think it's grand it's going to be what it is i can't kind of i can't personally change the climate i can kind of affect the weather yeah and, and I try and sort of try not to get too grandiose about it and produce crap metaphors like that. Yeah. No, it made me think of like in Samuel Johnson's Rasselas, they find this philosopher who's like been living in a tower, like contemplating the world for years. And he's slowly from isolation, instead of becoming wise, he started to believe that he controls the world's weather. And um, he's terribly guilty whenever there's like a big storm. He thinks he's controlling uh, farm, destroying farmers' crops and things like that, and they have to bring him out back into the world to get him to realise he can have kind of like limited partial control. You know, he can influence the world, but he can't steer the world, the weather with his mind. And so, in terms of like the ways that you can, um, you know, make some sort of small changes to the to to the weather from your uh, from your tower here in in, in Norwich, um, I was wondering. Can we just drill down into one of those? You talked about um, there's great things happening in publishing and not so much great things happening in publishing. I wonder if you could talk about some things you've seen that have been going well and maybe if there's something that you think we still need to work on. Mm. I, I think that um, kind of there are is really flourishing um, independent and small press scene and that is kind of pumping oxygen into kind of the older school sort of publishing houses and mainstream brands. There's some massive consolidation happening at the top level, but there's also some interesting diversification in their lists and their approaches. But I think independent publishing, it's always going to be fragile because of the nature of a business. But I think that we've got an incredibly brave set of publishers around at the minute who are really um, kind of innovating and being nimble and taking risks and bringing books from around the world as well as their own communities and giving voices to writers who previously have found less or fewer opportunities to really get out there to readers. So I think that's fantastic. I think literary translation into English has always been a challenge, but it's improving and it's kind of, it's like a rush of blood to the head for, for the art form, kind of having stories and languages from around the world coming into our own language. Why, thinking, do, why do you think it's been... Um... What do you think the reason is for it having been challenging in the past? On a very basic level, it's just the global hegemony of English as a language. <laughs> it kind of crushes all before it. And there are a lot of, uh, we work with a lot of partners around literary translation and understandably they're keen for, because of the nature of the English language market is so dominant, they want their authors to come into English. So they invest a lot in that, but there's less impetus for English language publishers um, to invest the other way around because the market share is so great in their favour. You know, that's not always the case in terms of some of the big publishers have got a long history of kind of translation, publishing and translation, but also the kind of the, an increased questioning of the role of the English language in terms of uh, literary translation and cultural relationships and the post-colonial and 
decolonization of kind of the literary canon is a really fascinating question that's only just starting to kind of get explored and have light thrown on it. Would you be able to, I, you know, I, 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 I realise the sort of slight um, moral hazard of, of the two of us uh, sitting here and uh, discussing the sort of um, the shoulds and shouldn'ts of uh, literary uh, decolonization. But then I, I suppose part of it is, is kind of everyone's responsibility. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about at least to start with what that means because I think for some listeners they will have heard the terms like decolonization thrown around but might not really when pushed know what that actually involves mm. well what I, it is a kind of it's a big term and it ha- it's happening in lots of different uh, forums and kind of areas and what I can do I suppose is say something from my point of view it's about listening to and understanding more about the dialogues and debates from literatures, languages and other uh, kind of stories that uh, challenge what I and kind of my kind of comfort zone thinks are centred in what is popular, what is uh, understandable, what is, what will be translated, what, what will get to readers, and who is able to, paid to and supported to write and translate and publish, and who isn't. And it's about starting to kind of question listening to those people and then helping that kind of ask yourself questions about who you're promoting, who you're supporting, who you're giving a voice to and how you can kind of change some of the kind of ingrained habitual comfort based decisions that happen across programming, publishing, talent development, literary translation, the curriculum in higher education and further education and you know who is reading what by whom and in which languages it's a process of kind of learning and questioning i think from my point of view I, that's really interesting because it made me uh, the um author aliette de brodard who has been on the show before was talking to me about how difficult she finds it to distinguish between her sense of like what a story looks like in the kind of uh craft sense and uh what are the stories in her immediate cultural milieu around her um, look like because those are the ones that have been published because of a series of cultural norms and that those two things might not be the same thing. That an idea of like what a story shape is, is what a protagonist does, where a story is set, what kind of stories are worth telling at all. Um, sometimes it's easy as an author to take your ideas about that as being sort of like neutral ones of craft rather than ones that might be inflected by ideology by what the industry is publishing all those kind of things so it sounds like that's you're saying that that is something that you're trying to not take various things for granted and challenging things at uh, assumptions at various levels is that sort of fair enough yeah i think it's about kind of it feels like anyway it's about realizing that there are very few if any neutral choices and that um kind of being defensive or anxious about it stops you kind of examining the ground that you're on somehow and that um and yeah and kind of thinking okay if there's no neutral choices that means everything is up for kind of debate or or released retelling which feels like an apt way of thinking about it in our world and who is telling the story, what story are they telling and how does it relate to what's gone before? You know, are you just reacting to what is popular, what is publishable? Are you, 
there's a very tight circle it feels sometimes between what is good what is popular what is um, sought by the publishing industry and what writers are seeking to do and it's sometimes hard to break out of those circles and I don't just mean writers as well because it affects everybody it, yeah it's, it's a process of questioning I think in which we always we always sort of get wrong in a way but we're kind of getting better at getting less wrong in some ways <laughs> yeah no no that makes no I, I know exactly what, what you mean and I think like it's tricky because like orig, originality and the act of creation is to a certain extent must always be a, a mistake you must always make some kind of what reads like a category error you must be doing something you know essentially wrong you know like I think it's you know you take let's take something like um silly example but like lord of the flies lord of the flies right that basically it goes i'm going to tell like a spiffing boy story only it's a terrible moral fable about the sort of like uh, uh about about the evil of humankind actually is what this is so essentially it's like a genre mistake oh and it's set in the future during world war three but we're not actually world three is happening we're not going to talk about that mm-hmm. like all of those things like from some level are a mistake you've missed the big story where world war three is happening why do we not mention it at all well because that's not what this story is about and i I think like any kind of moment of innovation there's always part of your brain as a writer as a reader sometimes you go this isn't like books i've seen before maybe the writer has didn't realize and made a mistake and then you go oh but this is actually returning something i've not seen oh oh and it creates all these new things and it is and it will always be a certain mistake. That's the basis of evolution, right? Is random mutations that create weird wings sticking off here. And then sometimes those mutations work hugely well. I'm not suggesting, of course, that, um, <laughs> that diversity is a form of mutation. But what I mean is that you have these moments of you try stuff and experiment. And, and also sometimes there's stuff that we think of as being the right way to do stuff. And it's just a reflection of the way it was always done because of who got there first and turned up and set some of these things down, right? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, because you have the translation, you have like writers like stay here. Is that is that right? Could you yeah. talk a bit about the translation work that's done on site? Yeah, we have a, a kind of a cottage for writers and translators on the in Dragon Hall campus. And we kind of work with a whole range of writers and translators. Sometimes they come together in that writer and translator pair hmm. and work together. And they stay in the cottage, a two-bedroom cottage together. And it gets kind of quite intense. Sometimes it's just translators who are spending some time either on a wider program in the country or they come for the summer school that we run in partnership with the British Centre for Literary Translation. Or we have a relationship with their country and they're looking for kind of uh, time to write slash translate and they come and engage with us and our communities of writers and translators we've had um, a couple of amazing Indonesian writers both um, sci-fi kind of uh, fantasy crossover and for children and young people and they get engaged in our schools and community work and they go out into the community and they sort of test their ideas and their work in progress against what's happening here and see how it goes back to their own work but also sometimes it's just literally a quiet house to spend some time writing or translating away from the reality of their of their existing professional lives so we, we offer the space kind of with a whole range of different ways from three four or four days up to two and a half months sometimes wow. depending on what it is yeah um and i was just wondering i suppose like the other thing i wanted to sort of move into was um we've talked a little bit about how you have uh, authors here and you have like various events and it sounds like a lot of the things you do also you try and 
sort of join them up. So if a writer comes over here, you'll have them involved in an event. There might be some education work. And then if there's, you, you also do educate, you also have people come here to do like writing workshops and stuff. That's right. Mm. Um, how do you, how do you put those together? Because you, like, because I suppose my, my main question is you could do it, you, you could do anything, right? Your choices in terms of writing are like infinite. Yeah. How do you how do you start like refining all these different things into sort of a program of things? You go, we're going to do this and not that, right? Yeah. Well, partly um, we kind of focus on writers. We kind of call it early career writers. It's a bit like all of these terms. It's a bit slack and useless, but it's quite helpful in its sort of blurriness. So it's those writers who are kind of committed or interested in writing and who've had a you know who are not sort of brand new necessary to it but we we sort of think about those writers right up until their first or second publications mm-hmm. or collections or pamphlets or whatever it might be and we talk to them quite a lot we think okay what is what does success mean to a range of those writers and translators at that part of their career because success for a poet looks very different to success for a novelist looks very different to success for someone who's interested in live literature or performance and we start thinking what are the kind of what are the what does success mean you know is it kind of uh, creatively is it commercially is it a mixture of the both because we all live in the dirty real world where you have to pay for the time that you spend doing what you might love doing um, and we start we construct programs around that we think about who's brilliant out there in the world at doing the things that other writers really want to do and we bring those people here to Norwich or we put them online in our programs online and we kind of we look at it as part of our talent development remit and we have a whole range of things which go from absolutely free opportunities and programs through to kind of cut price and discount things through to some paid activities which help subsidize the rest of the offer and we kind of try and think about it in a not in a, a kind of a holistic way um, because the world of writing is too big for that but we kind of think about it what do those particular writers in that part of their career what would they most benefit from and how can we help them so you if you because you've you must have heard of from loads of because uh, i know you know you i remember you know i was probably you know working with uh you guys oh gosh like it must be it must be like seven years seven or eight years ago now doing live literature and stuff i was wondering having listened to all these people who are sort of at the beginnings of their putative careers or people who are trying to sort of uh, deepen their practice as writers or people who want to take risks um what's the feedback you get about what do you think the the sort of biggest challenges that writers are you know face when they want to kind of move from this is something that I'm sort of have on the back burner to this is something that I'd like to whatever sort of percentage of the pie of my life it kind of takes up that I want to make a make a go at or have a like a serious crack at um what do you think the sort of what's the feedback you get from the biggest challenges facing them I think the I suppose the the biggest challenges or the the things that we can offer that are most useful which kind of meet in the middle I think um, we offer um, writers each other, um, yeah. <laughs> kind of providing people with a network or a community or a cohort, even if it's for a short period of time for a course or whatever it is, that they can, that they are, are together somehow virtually or physically as writers. And that's quite a powerful kind of impact on identity and sense of self. And you can actually, at that point in your career, saying, yes, I am a writer, not someone who does a bit of writing quietly or in the side, but I'm here because I'm a writer. And, and 
just a group of people to talk to seriously about the thing that you love is quite powerful. Time and space is critical. Um, access to information and um, direct access to where we can support to get grants and money and jobs and opportunities to perform, teach, develop your career, all critical. But I think about 60% of it, the, or the, the biggest single majority, is finding ways to give writers time and space with each other. And that goes for translators as well. I think I think that, that is it's the kind of thing that a certain sort of um, uh, tranche of like uh, middle or upper middle class, like cosmopolitan writers, take completely for granted that you know a bunch of write, other people who write yeah, around you absolutely. that they the, that network are sort of drip feeding you opportunity information that they that you go oh I'm having a real difficult time for this chapter um, whatever I think it, it, when you're in it. Uh, you notice it no more than a fish uh, notices itself covered by the coldness of the sea, right? Like you just assume, and, and, and a lot of people don't, a lot of writers in that situation don't realise the invisible barriers that are set up to people who don't immediately have everyone around them is a writer, everyone around them works in publishing or has some connection to that. And, and, and I think, I imagine for some people that you get on the courses or in these programmes, that just that one change it sounds you know when you were saying it to me it was almost like you were there's part of you it seemed like you're almost like well I know it doesn't sound like a big thing but to me that is like you say like it's a, it can that could have a profound shift in your sense of identity right there's an interesting piece in the Guardian I think it was this week about how kind of imposter syndrome is often just um, a class issue dressed up and I have a vague but sort of clearish recall of being at school and saying to someone in my careers department that I was interested in writing and books and literature and and I think what I got handed was a piece on how to be a court stenographer yeah. was kind of the nearest hit <laughs> well fine whoever it was did their best not, not, it wasn't I don't think it was Jermaine Greer's choice let's put it that way or Edmund White um, but there is a, a sense that kind of being around or having a, the opportunity to say, yes, this is what I'm serious about on some level is really powerful. And kind of, and that whole thing, you know, that if you can see it, you can be it sort of motto is really critical, even if you are in your 50s and you're coming to the realization that you desperately have to spend more time writing some poetry, for example, or working towards a collection. It's just as powerful meeting people on, on the same footing at that point as it is if you're 19 going to university and meeting people who want to get drunk together at university. It's the same sort of feeling, it's the same power anyway. Yeah, and, and you know, like, and and realizing when you when you do meet those people that when you say I'm working on some poems they don't sort of they don't fall about like crying with laughter yeah. they just normally go oh great me too yeah. and that like that <laughs> exchange can really, can be like oh oh well, I guess like oh I have to I imagine that people sometimes have like little moments of crises as well because at, at that point you're also like oh I'm gonna have to do it now <laughs> yeah well I I think it's part of that. Um... That development sort of arc is um, when people, it's interesting you're talking about how much of the pie chart of your life do you want to give over to being a writer and there's a lot of, uh, kind of there's a lot of public 
wider public shared kind of imaginative view that the writer sits alone and creates and sends their book off, receives a large amount of money, sits back for another two years and writes another one. And it doesn't work like that anymore. It hasn't done for quite a while. That happened for a period of time for a certain small number of writers. And that, you know, is rapidly changing. And it's about how you choose to, to balance your life. And do you really want to try and, or what do you actually know what it means to try and make a living from just, from writing for commercial publication? Because it's a very different world to however else you might want to balance it as a part-time thing or a portfolio of freelance opportunities. And, and it's kind of helping people explore that and mm-hmm. thinking about where the different opportunities are for them and where it can take them as a writer. Because there's a whole range of ways that writers work these days. And, and it's a it's a big old kind of multiverse. Can we um like can we talk a bit about the the prize um the Desmond Elliott Prize because this is um something that is sort of you know it's going to be at the time of recording hasn't been announced but when this comes out we, you will have sort of uh, be talking about it uh, and it will be public and I wondered if you could talk about because that's it's also a it's a if you could talk about the. I guess the background to the prize, mm. and then how what what your involvement is going to uh, is going to do because it's, it's certainly it's, it's I was long listed for the uh, Desmond Elliott when my first when the honours came out, um, and I just wondered if yeah if you could just talk a bit about that because I'm I'm really interested in awards yeah. and I've <laughs> I'm a bit of a pub bore on the show about occasionally I'll just someone will just like press the uh, prize culture button and i will i will suddenly like r- roll out from my corner in the of the bar and go let me tell you about and, and rant on but i just wondered if you could uh set the scene of what the yeah, Elliott prize yeah. is and what what your involvement is gonna um i'm trying not to say involved twice but um, <laughs> i can't <laughs> absolutely it's a it's an interesting kind of uh, environment doesn't Elliott prize is probably the country's leading prize for first novels for debut novels it's been going for 12 years and they've had some amazing people long-listed and short-listed and winners over that over thank that you for including long-listed chris i appreciate that but it's it's really important for the prize itself because they made a big point early on you know the first public event that every year it has is the lot all the long list coming together with their various publishers and other people because it's purposefully to shine a light on the long list as well and then the short list and then the final winner you know there's no getting away from a prize is one winner brackets except if it's this year's book close brackets yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll move on from that um, but the Desmond Elliott Prize has had this amazing heritage Desmond Elliott himself was an agent in the days when agents could also be publishers and he's a really interesting character who kind of uh, lived between London and New York and he firmly believed that um, writers in the early stages of their careers when they published that first novel they were in a really delicate position because they'd oftentimes spend five six seven nine years a lifetime creating that first novel and then if it went well they were suddenly expected to do another in 18 months after having dealt with that so what he did was give people two and three book deals at early first time novelists when this really wasn't common to help them kind of immediately kind of give them some stability and to give them a kind of a, a pathway through. to get them through what V Schwab called called um kind of refers to as the sophomore slump 
And the second novel. Yeah. And also to survive uh, financially uh, on first novel advances, which are, are traditionally not great unless you're one of the kind of the minority who kind of come float up at the top of those mad advances. Very few now. And so he, he kind of was quite an innovator in that sense. And when he died, he um, bequeathed uh, a chunk of his estate to found the Desmond Elliott Prize and the trust have been running it brilliantly for 12 years. And they're coming to a, came to a point where they um, had a limited amount of finance left and we started a, or they started a conversation with us to see what we might how we might sort of end the Desmond Elliott prize and I, and I kind of I don't like good things ending so I kind of did a bit of chin rubbing and said well what about if we sort of ganged together and put on a show no not if we didn't yeah. put on a show what if we started thinking about a, a slightly different future for the Desmond Elliott prize and if we could work in partnership with Arts Council England with the Desmond Elliott Trust, with National Centre for Writing, and think about making the Desmond Elliott Prize the core of a you know, three, in the first instance, of awards for writers in the early stages of their career to recognise what Desmond Elliott did himself, that writers need support over that period of time, so that, the, for example, the Desmond Elliott Prize has traditionally been a £10,000 prize. That will stay the same. But in addition to the £10,000 prize, we're putting together a 12-month package of support for the winner and for each of the two new awards as well. So they'll get some professional development, some mentoring, and the opportunity if they're able to and willing to come and spend time in residence with us here to work with our writers and communities at Dragon Hall and a little bit of a wraparound package to help them over that 12-month period. So that's what we're going to do. We we're really lucky to get some funds from Arts Council England to back that up. And this is and the, and the is this for this is for published first novels, right? Is this? So, yeah, there will be the so the overall package is going to be the National Centre for Writing Early Career Awards. The heart of that is the Desmond Elliott Prize. So that is for debut novels mm. uh, from the UK and Ireland. Uh, it published in English. Then there will be a second award called the uh, Lucy Kinsler. Oh, sorry, I've got it wrong. It's the Laura Kinsler Foundation Fellowship. Um, and that will be for writers, that won't be for a published novel, that will be for a project and piece of writing idea for a fellowship year. That will be for writers who are coming from non-traditional backgrounds or coming from uh, non-traditional routes into publishing, however that might be defined, and we're going to kind of leave that up to a large amount of self-definition. And the third award will be the UEA New Form Writing Award. So that is people who are looking or working with fiction, but taking it in interesting new directions, whether that is working with fiction and performance, fiction and technology, fiction and campaigning, fiction and uh, kind of however it may figure, figure out against the digital online world. Again, self-defined, they'll pitch a piece of writing and a proposal for that year. They'll get a £4,000 award and a package of support to work with the partners for a year to develop that work. Oh, Chris, you see, I, I wanted to come into this Oh, I didn't really want to come into this all guns blazing and be all like controversialist, but I felt like I, I should put up some kind of like resistance. But they sound really cool, and like I feel now I'm going to sound sycophantic. But like I love the idea that you have a debut novel prize that has some kind of. Am I right in thinking that for the debut novel, the Desmond, anyone there that support is for that as well? So yes. they get that because yeah. so, that is, I think, the thing consistently over. Every novelist I've spoken to, after that first novel, no matter whether that, their first novel did really well, in fact, often when their first novel did very well, that next year is a rocky time for mm. them. Even if it does really well, actually, that's often when the ones that experience the most self-doubt, sometimes maybe when it doesn't do particularly well, 
you know, it takes a little bit of pressure off and they go, oh, no one's watching. No, just... But um, that, I can't think of any of them that wouldn't have found that just... So my experience is also that when you get that first novel out, before then, it's kind of okay for you to go to writing workshops. It's okay to be in education. You feel like you're part of that kind of aspiring writer. No, some people don't like that term. And then as soon as you have your first novel out, now there's a sense that you're now performing being a professional. Yeah. And you're going to turn up and you're going to do readings and people are going to say, what's it like to write a novel? And you go, well, when I started, I... And actually, it can be very lonely because suddenly you cut yourself off from a load of support networks. Mm. So that sounds hugely useful. I think it's a, it's a concerted or at least a deliberate effort to try and um, back up the kind of public recognition of financial gift, which is really important to writers. Oh, yeah. Let us not forget. <laughs> <laughs> Giving writers money, I think, is a great thing. And, and it's tough because not everyone can have all of the money all of the time recognize that but it's a it's a um it's a deliberate attempt to try and back up some of that award with some constructive support that will make the tail end of that or, or the 12 months after the award fruitful positive and kind of a little bit more constructive for them at the same time we're, we're aware that um competition in art is complicated unpleasant and difficult um in the sense that the competition in art is illusory. There's no way to compare two pieces of, of fiction, really. You can't, you can't really make them fight, unfortunately. No, no, you can't get them to do a dance-off. You can't <laughs> even make them fight naked in front of a fire unless you write a script about it. <laughs> but, but, but there is the, where the value is in it is creating a bit of a bigger platform and generating more um, attention and ideally some forms of support for the long list, the short list and the winners through that process. And also bringing uh, what we want to do, particularly with the Desmond Elliott Prize as well, as an important component is, is that there are things like um, the trust and we will continue the hashtag discover a debut campaign, mm. which is a really, has been a really great way of cutting over a million and a million and a half people each year to think about or at least retweet discovering debut novels and the prize out there. Because it's great because, you know, apart from those really few season leading debut signups and publishers, First-time novelists in publishing houses, both independent and mainstream, they are authors who don't have um, the POS record to back up a huge marketing investment because there's no record of what they've sold What before. does POS stand? The, the point of sale material, the data that comes back from the shops through the brilliant people at places like Nielsen and other places. So if, you know, if you're a mid-list author and the sales manager at your publisher says, well... The last three novels have sold consequently, you know, subsequently fewer and fewer each time. We're not sure if we've got enough marketing push. Debut novelists don't even have that. Publishers just don't know where they're going to sit or how successful they're going to be. They don't have the capacity to, to get their agent to ring up and say, you know, go out shouting about this book as hard as you can because they're a first-time novelist who don't have any track record. So it's really fantastic to kind of to get more kind of focus on that first-time fiction across the book trade across the indie book trade as well as the change and also into the into the libraries to see if we can get people reading debut fiction in libraries because trying something new you know is often a challenge and um for readers as well because they want quite a lot of readers get quite angry when the writers that they love change the sort of thing that they write and they just want them to write the same thing again and again there's that brilliant kind of um pre-track 
message from Joni Mitchell on one of her live albums where she says, you don't ask Van Gogh to paint Starry Night again. Why should I sing this song again? <laughs> but the, the readers do feel like that about writers sometimes and it's tough to branch out. So it's about kind of... Um, there's a competition element to prizes which narrows things down to one but there's also a way of opening up the market for more for everyone through promotion of them and supporting the wider kind of discussion about first time fiction and new writing and that's what we're aiming for Can you talk a bit about the sort of um, supporting and sort of helping people discover writers from non-traditional backgrounds because that's um, not something that was originally part of the Desmond Elliott Prize so this is sort of something that you're um, sort of put moving into it I'm wondering um, how that came about as mm-hmm. part of it and what your how if this isn't too obvious question what you're hoping to um, sort of help people discover yeah. or achieve through it okay again it was another conversation the writer Alice Jolly who was long listed for the booker this year I think um, was talking to me about something else and she and her husband through the uh, Laura Kinsler Foundation have supported quite a few writers through places like Arvon and other places and she was particularly uh, interested in the work that we did for writers who hadn't come through the MA program route or hadn't come through a uh, kind of a, a traditional kind of um, from a place where writing literature and the arts was an obvious choice for them and so we talked for you know six or eight months and we thought well okay well let's create the Laura Kinsler fellowship and that's going to be for writers who come perhaps sidewards they may be older they may not be older they may be younger they may be absolutely through no formal education or they may have a really complicated domestic setup which means they've got caring duties or child care issues which means it's impossible for them to do things like writing programs and retreats or to engage in the same way they may live in really remote parts of the country and just not have access mm. to the uh, the capital needed both physical and social to access the publishing and the writing worlds let's just open it up see who comes to let's think about if someone can provide some uh, piece of writing to us and a kind of a, a mini pitch if you like for what they do with a year of support and an award let's go out there and see what we can who we find and what sort of voices come through there and who we can bring through into into the wider world i think people yeah i think people don't realize all the ways that writing not through a big conspiracy just through the nature of what it is and the way it's set up and the kind of people who go into publishing um all the ways that there are things set up in the in the way of people who aren't from a certain background who don't you know who might not even just like know that things that things exist and like you say with like certain sort of like domestic setups as well I noticed like quite a lot of the sort of big oh here's a writing residency you have to go go off a six have you got six months free to go and write in the siberian steppe so like they assume you have no domestic responsibilities no you've got a job that you can just leave um and a, a lot of those things do sort of leave out people who um have to work for a living or maybe have you know family or caring things or just yeah like or maybe people who wouldn't necessarily know about these things because their background is in something completely different so that sounds really that again sounds really exciting to me and i wish i had something sort of more um salty or sort of like pointed to say so you could you'd feel challenged um i think there's, there's like these conflicting sort of understandings and metaphors about talent in a way that there's you know there's a school of people some people who think you know if you're talented you'll make it full stop 
you think, okay, there's a degree of truth to that in the sense that if you're talented, you'll keep trying, but that doesn't mean you'll make it at all. And there's this kind of the people who say, well, you know, it's like electricity, it'll, you know, talent takes the least route of least resistance and it'll find a way through. You think, well, actually, all of our lives are about lots of different points of resistance. We all have these weird points of resistance. You know, if I'd wanted a career in writing as a 17-year-old, I'd be a stenographer now hmm. in a court and not a, you know, someone working in the literary arts. It's kind of by chance that it came about and lots of things happen by chance. But we can kind of, if you want to make change, you've got to change things. So we're just trying to sort of do a little bit of an intervention to see, okay, well, who's out there that is incredibly talented, who would benefit from a range of professional support that hasn't had... It's had more barriers than other people. I think my experience is that there are people with the sort of best will in the, you know, like with they're they're trying to be helpful when they say. I sort of I, it's one of the reasons that I started to find social media really difficult to be on because I I just was reacting to things as if they were personal attacks at me. But people post, you know, best-selling authors going, look, you don't need loads of money to write. You don't need loads of connections. I had no, none of those things when I was growing up. Um, and now I'm a best-selling author. So just start your damn book. You know, don't worry about it. You don't need to be a big name. You don't need to have a friend in it. You don't need to have money. Writing doesn't cost you anything. Just get started. And I understand the pos- they're trying to say, they're trying to make people from who don't consider themselves from a writing from writing stock, whatever that means, to have a go at it. But it actually, it's almost like it, it doesn't actually remove any of those no. barriers. No. Uh, and then it becomes, uh, and then actually the only you only see the people who do well. So you don't see all the people who might be very, very talented who just face plant into these kind of like uh, glass barriers and then and we just, and we don't actually notice them because we only hear because it's survivorship bias we only hear the people who manage to get through the minefield to the other side it's a, it's like a slightly weird version of a, yeah well my granddad smoked 100 cigarettes in 1998 <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> and, you, and you do have to be tenacious and you can do it on very little and etc but it's just much less likely. <laughs> and given that uh, I and my organisation are in receipt of public funds and private funds from a whole range of places, we kind of have an obligation and with the limited sort of gatekeeping statuses that we have in the sense that we have those public funds to think a bit more kind of globally than that and think, well, OK, well, where are the barriers and how do we start bringing them down a bit? What do you think of the... Um uh, the uh, the recent decision of the Booker Prize. What did you think about? You it? had one job, <laughs> one job, and you didn't do it, guys. Because my, my understanding, <laughs> I, I, well, I see. I've, I'm like vaguely aware of what's happened that they that they chose they chose two winners, and I don't really know how it's received, except that someone appeared to be right. One of the judges appeared to be writing a defence of that, which makes me think that some people were. Unhappy. What do you? I mean, what do you think the place of something like the Booker Prize is now? Now that it's been expanded, was it a good idea to expand it to international authors and not keep it within oh, the UK? Um, that's another sort of massive sort of controversy within the in the, in the book world. I, I know that's why I'm trying to ensnare you. In the, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. No, I'm genuinely interested actually in your I, take. Uh, in terms of whether it was a good idea to open it up to novels uh, from the US, etc. I think. It's fine, you know, it's their money and their prize. They can do whatever they want with it. That's absolutely fine. And just like the judges this time can do whatever they want with the decision, except it wasn't necessarily with the permission of the people who run the prize or the backing of the people who run the so, prize. So they chose two people and then at what point... 
do, do, do the people who run the prize not get to say what what um, you what you're doing? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I'm outside all of this. You know, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I'm just reading the reports, and apparently there was a kind of a you know an argument about it, and the judges stuck to their guns, and that's a decision they made. They because they. they the prize had been awarded to two books at the same time in the past, but after that happened, the rules were explicitly changed to say that it couldn't ever happen again. Now it has, and and that's fine. I don't think it's either a kind of kind of ontologically a good or a bad thing that it happened in the way it did. It just did, and either way casts particular sort of shadows on the prize's future or ways that people are going to view it. And I personally think that it that it it just wasn't a good idea for that to have happened but you know uh what no one gives a shit what i think you know i'm no i'm i I just i no i I suppose like i'm i suppose the reason i ask is not is more to get to this idea of like the place of literary prize culture in the uk and in the wider world and how it feeds into literature because you know when you're talking about how you what you are you folks are doing with the desmond elliott prize like i can see you know you've you know mentioned some caveats about how it would be ideal if you know obviously if there was an infinite amount of money and we could just you know give it to all books that we considered deserving of a Mm. year you can't quite do that so you can try and do it in a way that draws it shines a light on the short and long list while only being able to choose one. I can see the function there. But for stuff that uh, happens for authors in sort of later career and stuff, I mean, do you think that there are ways in which prizes could be rejigged for, you know, like, what what is there a need for the Booker Prize now? I think the Booker Prize does an amazing kind of global job of focusing attention on literature and novels. I think that... Who would have heard of Margaret Atwood without... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think that... Uh, I suppose what concerns me in a sense is that, you know, that if the rationale was that it was just impossible to decide between these two novels... That, yeah, which is their, as you yeah. say, is their job. <laughs> Given that the vast majority of every other book prize, it has been possible to make an impossible decision between two novels. It's obviously not true that it's not possible to, to make a decision between two novels because it happens literally every week as a prize for something, whether it's the Litchfield Prize for novels which feature Litchfield or the Booker <laughs> Prize. You know, it happens all the time. So of course it can be. So I don't, I sort of don't believe that they couldn't make a decision between the two. Um, it's possible, but they chose not to. That's fine, uh, but that has implications for the rest. What they've done is not going to impact or change the prize culture, I think, because it's just brought a particular focus to the Booker Prize. It hasn't changed the field for prizes. Prizes are not fair, effectively. Competition is never entirely fair. That's kind of fine in a sense. You either buy it or you don't. You don't go in for it if you really don't believe it. Or you do, and you understand the limitations around prizes, competition, etc., and you hope to mitigate some of the the worst aspects by offering a kind of more transparency or a better deal for a wider range of participants. Because it hugely it. polarizes publisher resources. Um, yeah. Investing what what um, goes in for a prize, it does definitely um, polarize sales. A few of the prizes do round uh, books, and you were talking about you know the this kind of like nimble and spry world of small presses 
entering something like the Booker Prize could be huge if they won, but it, it's also a huge amount of resources for mm-hmm. them just to be able to commit a book yeah, to it, right? Absolutely, and there's no difference between what the large publishers pay or commit to what the tiny publishers pay and commit. And you've got to ask yourself, is that going to change as a result of this decision? No. They haven't looked at those barriers there. They're looking at the end point and not the not anything in the process running up to it. So I kind of think, it, you know, ultimately, I'm not in charge of the Booker Prize. I don't pay for it. But this could be like your image. bid, Chris, though. This is- <laughs> no, I don't want to. It does really well. It's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. So they can make whatever decisions they want, but we don't all have to like them. Yeah, and and I suppose I suppose if then, let's imagine by um, some. Uh, stroke of uh, happenstance, neither neither good nor bad. You um, were put in a position where um, you had sort of you were able to influence not just. And I am you know, I'm doing this with self interest, right? Because we we're talking about like authors at the beginning of their their career, and I'm now moving into the murky area of like mid lists, and that's where I suppose the majority of authors. No. Maybe about two thirds of the authors I have on the show are like probably what you would consider the mid list now, the third book and on, um, and 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 occasionally there can be I think people are sort of a bit nicer than this, but um, occasionally the debut novelists can feel a bit like the barbarians at the gates. Like it's difficult to not feel threatened by all this talent coming up because you're like, well, I'm still here. Um, I was wondering, but those debut novelists are also going to become mid-list and going to hopefully produce more books afterwards do you think they what do you think could change within the culture in the way that we set things up to create a more sustainable environment for authors as they kind of as they kind of emerge from sort of the beginnings of their career into Mm. kind of like mid-career it's a really interesting question. I think that um, the the way we sort of think about it in a way, and it's the same for you know our partners in this world of kind of, of people who work with writers and translators but don't necessarily publish them. So you know our, our partners in New Writing North or New Writing South or Spread the Word in London and Writing West Midlands and East Midlands. We we kind of think about you know why are we supporting the culture of writing and who are we supporting and what do we want it to achieve? And it's partly about. Uh, kind of ensuring that stories are told and shared, partly about ensuring that writers as artists can kind of survive and thrive economically in the way that, you know, writers are, are kind of entrepreneurs in the sense that they take this really raw material of their imagination and they have to adapt to a wildly variable marketplace around them to package, repackage, repurpose that product in different ways to help themselves survive. And that the kind of traditional route of agent and publisher is one way of kind of um, buffering yourself from the harsh realities of that. But those walls are getting thinner and thinner and the cushioning is getting thinner and thinner because it's a tough old world out there. So there's teaching, there's writing for um, other genre or platforms, there's writing for screen, for stage, for radio, for games, for other things. There's self-generating income through podcasts through individual collaborative projects, through a whole range of stuff like that. And that writers have to be entrepreneurial about it and kind of ensuring that not just the um, already economically fit writers survive in that evolutionary race, but a, a wide range of voices is kind of partly our remit in business as well in the sense that for the health of the wider ecology, we want lots of different voices to survive, not just the ones that can afford it. 
so that's where we we place ourselves. Yeah, so I, I get. Yeah, I, I really like that that you're kind of like turning it back. Because I think a lot of writers, when they hear about all those options, and they they hear, you know, you have to diversify, otherwise you will perish. That can feel very threatening. But mm. actually, when I look back at my own career, for example, what my actual experience of that has been really joyous. Like actually, in another way to look at it is there is this huge. Uh, space in which you can play there's this huge range of opportunities now that can be a bit paralyzing and it can be really useful to have places uh like yourselves to sort of like help steer you towards those things and find best fits you don't have to do in fact you probably can't do all of it um but you know the the, this but but within that there's actually if you go kind of go try and go wide rather than going deep um you can find all these different things that you wouldn't have thought of that can actually cross-train and inform what you'd consider to be your core work in really, really useful ways. That um, and you're and I guess you're just about trying to not um, trying to not not allow the literary culture to develop a kind of Habsburg jaw of kind of like as as the, totally. this one type of voice just yeah. kind of breeds with itself and only learns from itself. And the dominant narrative in some ways for writers has been that, um, you know, it's changing a bit now. And in some ways now it includes, you know, you love literature, you do an MA, you get a book deal, you get paid in advance, you stay at home and you write lots of novels and stuff. And that just doesn't happen anymore. It's broadening that bandwidth to think, okay, well, what are you doing? How are you working? Other art forms, I think, of theatre and visual arts in particular, where they have a concept of the artist practitioner, and these are people who for decades have mixed kind of practicing their art form with teaching, with engagement, with project work, with other stuff. And it's about kind of thinking what that might mean for writers in what traditionally have been kind of quite rarefied middle class, limited opportunities for writers to exist. And if you want to broaden the bandwidth, you're going to have to change the nature of what's kind of on the territory. It's a bit like universities expanding so rapidly. It's brilliant on the one level because a lot more people from many more backgrounds go to university, but that has to change what university is. Yeah. Um, and I just, uh, thank you very much, Chris, for talking about all this because it's actually really, really interesting and it's making me think about a lot of these things uh, differently and how I relate to stuff. And also just a reminder, like I think so many of those things you're talking about, I assumed when I got into writing that writing was the thing I wanted to do and things like those I thought like teaching was this ancillary thing and and that I would probably do it would be kind of like I'd be doing it to kind of get the bills paid and actually I've discovered that it's something that I love and that I derive a huge amount of meaning from so I suppose like my sort of like thing I'd want to say to writers is don't be too scared by this idea that you might diversify and go wide to be able to to be able to survive it can make it seem like something that you wouldn't do unless your back was to the wall but I think you can actually really expand your sense of uh, self as an artist mm. like and what yeah. you enjoy it's a, it's a bit of a daft example but I, uh, I bumped into a really absolutely brilliant brilliant poet uh, who I won't name but uh, I was saying to the, this poet um, well you're not going to be interested in this kind of tiny commission that we've got going or anything and, and they went no no I really really am it's kind of as opposed to sitting with a blank page and thinking about a book that I currently hate having any sort of commission just gives me a sense that I'm a real person in the world that somebody needs <laughs> really you feel like you're oh, fantastic <laughs> yeah I remember when I was directing some voice actors um, for a video game back in 2005 or something and I, I went to, one of them was I 
um, uh, an actor off the the arches and I was saying to him oh, I'm really you know I'm really sorry that this is you know you're doing this kind of like goofy starship captain and he was like no I'm really enjoying this like this is really fun like and I, I suddenly felt really embarrassed because I've been like going oh well you know I know this isn't sort of drama or anything but like actually you suddenly find that there's like you know, like, and if something feels like sometimes the stakes can be lower, right? Mm. Like, you just go, well, I, all I have to do is be like, there's uh, 50 humans and like kind of do this. And it's that's good fun. And you're getting paid for it, right? What could be that's great. That's a great afternoon's work. Um, I wondered if we could um, to finish off. Thanks so much for um, chatting to me, Chris. I wonder if you could just um, maybe um, uh, talk about or plug um, a book or two that you've read recently that you've really um enjoyed since we've done ones kind of like from the um uh past i wondered if you there's any anything you've read in the sort of last year or any authors that you've really enjoyed that you think oh this was ace uh quite a lot um i'm trying to think um i love vani capaldale's poetry i just think she sort of she has the capacity to uh, or their work has the capacity to open up the top of my head and just give my brain a bit of a squeeze in hmm. a way that many other kind of writers don't. So I would recommend Vani and their new book. Um, I have recently, uh, oh, I read Melmoth by Sarah Perry. Which so I haven't read that yet. Paperback. Um, and that's, if you want to welcome a kind of almost unbearable feeling of mortal dread and anguish into your life for a fortnight, I recommend that. <laughs> You can have that ghost of Melmoth walking alongside you for a fortnight. It's just un, it's unbelievably powerful, I find. I also have been very lucky to read the, a proof of Ema McBride's forthcoming new novel, Strange Hotel. And nobody does bodies like Ema McBride does bodies in literature. And I think it's just, it's really wonderful. Does it, does it have, um, is it... I, I don't want to sort of reduce um, her to like a one-trick pony, but um, because I, I, I taught on an Arvin course where she was our guest on the Wednesday, and it was just an absolute delight. And in the next morning at breakfast, every single writer who was on the course was absolutely glowing. They, they, in fact, they had exactly that experience that you were talking about of like, oh, this person's a, a writer, and then she just talked to them as like we're writers I'm a writer you're a writer let's just talk as if we're writers and at breakfast the next morning everyone was like like hovering with mm. this kind of feeling of like oh wow I'm I'm the same kind of the same kind of like thing as her but um, is it experimentally uh, is it formally experimentative or has uh, it got style it's not the stream of consciousness that uh, a girl's a half formed thing or the first half of uh, the lesser bohemians is but it's a different uh, approach. Um, I think Ema uh, kind of said to me at one point that she thought it might be her most accessible novel to date until she read the proofs. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, awesome. she's, she's very good. <laughs> she is. Yes, she really is. I'm... And also Ali Smith. I, I just keep going back to I read Spring again recently and the latest of her sort of uh, uh, tetralogy and she's just you know I'm just really glad that Ali Smith is there writing Why do you things. think Ali Smith um, uh, manages to, I, I don't really know any other authors who inspire such l incredible loyalty I feel like if there were a nuclear war she would be like leading <laughs> some kind of community because there's just so resistance. many people who, who, would, who, who would lay down their bodies like in front of the diggers to stop uh, anyone getting to her. What do you think it is about her that makes people sort of love her so much 
um, that she is able to acknowledge all of the horror, indignity, oppression and compulsions that shape our world and still somehow there is this absolutely irresistible flame of hope in her writing and it, it just it's it really kind of inspires a degree of sort of um kind of emotion in people that's quite kind of compelling to witness and, and i'm like that as a reader so oh that's badass well thank you very much chris if Pleasure. people want to um read uh, more about what writer's center um is up to um where can they go nationalcenterforwriting.org.uk Sign up to our newsletter. The uh, Early Career Awards and the Desmond Elliott Prize is all on the homepage as well. We've got courses, we've got events, we've got free socials for those who are in and around us here, but also online stuff as well. And we work with people around the country. So just uh, drop us a line, say hello. Cool. So I will um, put a link to that in the show notes of today's episode. I've resisted pointing downwards with my finger, which I seem to do every episode as if I'm on a YouTube video and you can see me pointing to the notes below. But if you look in the show notes of today's episode, you will be able to um, find it. Um, Everybody listening, thank you very much for tuning in today. And I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.